0: Hello, this is Melissa Hale, Spencer Editor of the Altamont Enterprise. Delighted to have with us today, Dr. Teresa Gill. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you for having me. I was not going to ask this question that was foremost in my mind as I read her book, and I'll tell the title of her book so you all know it from the start, Women Who Were Sexually Abused as Children, Mothering, Resilience, and protecting the next generation. Because the first thing I wanted to know was, how does this woman do this? And she says right in her introduction that people ask her that all the time. But for her, and you can give us your answer. Um, a
1: lot of people say to me, even people in the field, that must be a really difficult population. How do you manage the stories of these women? Um, but they're more than just their story. These are powerful women who are bright, intelligent, they're resilient, they want life to be different, and they particularly want life to be different for their children than it was for them. And they have humor, and they have um, tenacity, and caring, and all of those things were the things that I focused on. Because what you want to do is you want to focus on people's strengths and help build from that. And their stories are what happened to them. Their stories are not who they
0: are. That is a wonderful philosophy, but it still must somehow get to your heart. Um,
1: I I think as a therapist that one way I deal with that is... um, I don't need to take on their story and get stuck in their story with them. What happened in terms of why they got hurt was because there was nobody there to help them after the incident. There was nobody to tell and nobody to talk to. There was nobody to stop it from happening again. And so my job... As a therapist, is to be able to listen and be a witness that's non-judgmental, that doesn't cri- criticize them, that is present for them, and unconditionally. Um, and also help them to separate that their story is not who they are. Because a lot of the shame that survivors feel is the shame related to what happened to me was bad, therefore I am bad, and something is wrong with me. Um, and so to move them out of that is to help them bring words, sometimes for the first time in their lives, to their experience. So once they can bring words and they can kind of Um, see their experience objectively, then they can begin to work with it and work through it.
0: Well, time and time again in the book, you coax these women to tell their stories and relive the horror they went through so that they can control it and go forward as a healed person. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that struck me that you wrote in your book was this idea that there's this veil of silence. You wrote, this book unravels the veil of silence. And could you just talk a little about that? Because I think you're right. Um, In the news business, we we run into it a lot. Um, So
1: I was at a book fair just the other weekend, and two incidents occurred um, that kind of explain that. One was that a woman came up to me, she was in her 70s, and she says, and it's in a whisper, I want to thank you for writing this book. And I want to thank you for giving the title that you gave it. Um, and this was my experience, and I wish it was around 30 years ago when I was raising my children. She says, it's still too painful, so I'm not going to be able to read your book, but I just wanted to thank you. The About an hour later, a couple came over, a man and a woman, and the husband started talking to me and asking me questions, and his wife did an about-face and walked away. Um, And I didn't know what that was about, but I noticed it, and I continued to talk to the husband. And again, in a whisper, it was, she's a survivor and she's having a really bad day. Um, it's too painful for her to deal with. Um, He later came back about an hour later and bought the book for his wife and said, you know, my hope is that she can contact you if she has any questions. And I said, well, the book is the first place to go because as much as there's stories that are difficult to listen to, as one of the people who did... Uh, summary of the book, they said expect comfort. So there's comfort in that too. So it's not just stuck in the stories, but it's talking about how to gain relief and how to move forward. But um, I just thought it was interesting to go back to the book fair, how they were still whispering to me Mm -hmm. as if it's still a secret and we can't talk about this. Uh, There is something in society when the victim somehow gets blamed and Um, they don't engage them anymore. They see them as the horrific incident, and they tend to objectify the person, and they kind of separate from them. So not to have isolation and to feel like they're normal and to be able to engage in the world, they don't discuss it, um, which just furthers the trauma in their lives and the repetition.
0: Well, looking at the reactions online, both in book reviews... From professionals who admired the book um, for things like its bibliography and its references and its detailing case histories, that was very useful. There was also this very emotional response, similar to what you're describing at the book there, from victims of child sexual abuse who had felt that you gave credence to their experiences and, and just reading some of them I, I was so moved one of them it um, said by sharing common experiences women can begin to transform shame into pride and silence into strength and I just wonder if you have any thoughts on what people that aren't skilled therapists like you are uh, people who aren't professors that teach this just kind of everyday people, um, because all of us, I'm sure, run into others who have had these hidden horrible experiences. I mean, what kind of advice is there for society in general to be able to respond in a good way?
1: Well, one out of four women are sexually abused before the age of 18. There's probably about 21 million moms in the United States so this is not a small population. This is a huge population. Um, when I was doing my research for the book, um, there are about eighteen articles in the last twenty-five years. So this is um, scholarly articles written on this subject. But who reads scholarly articles? You know, you know, people have to do research papers in the doctoral program or in the master's program, and other people in the field. But those articles really don't get to the to the regular population. But this is the first book that's written for them and about them. Um, So my hope is that the book is able to put words to help describe the experiences of these mothers in terms of the best thing that we can do. So when I asked women, how did you survive? Um, For every single one of them, the major way that they survived their childhood. And it's always a good question to ask somebody um, who has been through a difficult childhood. Um, And they all said I had somebody that I knew loved me. I had somebody that I knew was out there. So even in my darkest times, even when I was like sinking into a hole, the light that kept me alive was the thought of that person that was out there. One woman only saw her aunt once a year for a week She lived on the east coast. The one in California, where
0: she would visit and go out to restaurants, and yeah. And
1: her aunt, she knew her aunt loved her, and that um, her aunt would, you know, buy her clothes and take her to restaurants and watch movies with her and was kind and gentle, and that's the image that she kept alive. And over and over and over again in my practice and the interviews that I did with mothers, that's the story that they told. It was either a grandmother or a mother or a sibling or sometimes it was a neighbor. They would find a buddy and that buddy's family became their second family That's where they went to hang out. That's where they engaged in the world. And they tried not to go to their own dysfunctional homes. Um, So being somebody who can be present, I know that in our culture we don't have, like, basic communication skills. Just to get somebody to listen to you for five minutes to really be present for you and to hear what you have to say and to get it on an intellectual and also, more importantly, on a heart level and have the intellect and the heart connected while you're bearing witness to somebody's story, that in itself is healing. If survivors had that when they were younger, they probably wouldn't have been traumatized. The trauma is that nobody was there. The trauma is what happened the second part of that trauma that escalates the symptoms is that nobody was there to hear them, nobody was there for them to share their story or for them to even get protection.
0: Yes, this part about heart I find really fascinating because you write in one part that you um, were asked to be on a panel of experts, and you mm-hmm. went to the library, and you found, as you just said now, no real literature on this subject. And you took this courageous move. You decided you were going to speak in this setting of academia from the heart about w- what, what it is you have to feel as a therapist to make, to make that work. Could you just tell us a little about that? There's now more research on that,
1: but um, going through school and getting my master's and then my PhD, it's supposed to be an intellectual process. So... um, you have to be careful with things like transference and counter-transference, and you know, you're know you not supposed to get too attached to your client, and you're not supposed to be feeling too deeply for them, and that if you have a strong connection, you need to be thoughtful about that, because what needs are you getting met via that client? Um, so. It, You're supposed to be going in and kind of like being a cold slate listening to their story. But what we know now is that doesn't heal. Um, You really need to have compassion, and you need to be able to have your heart open. Um, Our clients know when it feels safe. And in order for you to feel safe emotionally and physiologically, because now we have lots of studies to show that the body needs to feel safe, And um, one way to do that is to be connected to your own as a therapist, to be connected to your own body, to be connected to your own physiological arousal. So if you know that you're being stressed or that you're being triggered, you need to calm yourself so that you can be more present. And unless somebody feels compassion from the person who's bearing witness, there's no safety and they're not going to be telling you their full story and they're not going to be able to heal. So that relationship issue is critical. And it's critical whether it's a therapist or whether it's a family member or a friend. And we need to be able to develop more relational skills in our country and skills around compassion and empathy and how to do that. Um, the problem is, is that if you haven't had compassion and empathy for your own story, it's hard
0: to display it for others. And the numbers are just overwhelming. I looked up something. You, it was posted on the Psychology Today website that you had written, and it was, I think, um, the Centers for Disease Control had mm. done a survey of, of children who had had, um, they're called, what are they? Called? Adverse Childhood Experiences. aches, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And the numbers were just stunning. Two-thirds of the population that was studied for the survey had... Um, at least two check marks in these categories. And that means there are more of us who have these traumas than there are those who don't. And it just seems like the role of a therapist, no matter how good, (laughs) can't possibly go far enough to reach everyone. So maybe it's just a matter of everyone trying to develop these skills that you're talking about. Um, We need them to be better mothers. We need them
1: to be better partners to our significant others. We need them to be better in any role that we do, whether we're a teacher, um, whether we're a checkout counter person, in, you know, price chopper. We need to be able to be present for people and to be respectful of people. In Buddhism, um, they say, cause no harm, and we need to cause no harm and that means judgment and criticalness and um, you know, seeing ourselves as better than other, which means that you make the other person an object, um, we need to get better at not doing that because that's also part of the hurt that we pass down to people.
0: Well, one of the things about your book that I found most riveting was the way you took individual stories of women that you had worked with and you change their names. Yes. You wrote early on, and you know identifying uh, things that people could tell who they were. But then you you tell their stories um, in the most no nonsense way. I, there's just no frills in these stories. <laughs> they just I. It, they hit you in the gut. And I'm just going to read a passage from just one little bit. There are many passages on this girl that you've named Clara, mm-hmm. who thought of herself as trailer trash, oh, and, yes. um, who was abused at a young age by her older brother mm-hmm. and then thought she was being rescued. Um, her mother was not present, her father slowly died in front of her of emphysema and an aunt and uncle took her in who seemed loving and the uncle would take her fishing and molest her but here is just this passage that really seems to get what it's like from a very young child's point of view because when you just say the words, oh people blame themselves, you think how, Mm -hmm. why but here I'm just going to read this When my brother was molesting me, I was thinking he was testing me to see if I was a real princess. And I imagined that if I was a real princess, that everything in the house would change and everything at home would be better. I imagined that if I was a real princess, the family would have money and we would be rich and live in a big house, and mommy would be happy and come back, and daddy would get better from emphysema. However, when I woke up and walked into the living room, I saw dad smoking a cigarette. The house was a mess, my mother had not returned. At that moment, I realized I was not a princess and I was not going to be able to save my family. My body became heavy and I felt despair and I realized I was totally alone. I had no one to go to, not my father who was dying or my mother who had left years before. I mean, I'm just speechless after reading that. And you deal with this day in and day out as a professional. So tell us just what you did for that woman, how you got her, you go through this whole quick dialogue of almost like, just tell us how you worked with her. Um,
1: and the, the basic, many of the women that I interviewed They always said that there was one person, family member. But they also said that their therapist, because their therapist was the mother they didn't have. Their therapist was their friend, so their therapist was multiple roles for them. Their therapist taught them how to be good mothers. Um, The key thing is to be there and to be present and to listen to their story and to ask them lots of questions, so we don't want to say things like, oh, that happened a long time ago. Oh, don't feel bad. It's different today. But just ask them lots of curious questions about the past so that they could talk about it and they can be in those feelings. Because what happens is she used the defense mechanism of fantasy. Many of my clients told me, not all of them, but a number of them, so it's not unusual, that the abuse experience wasn't the thing that was hurtful. It was afterwards. Like the realization that, oh, my God, you know, nothing in the family has changed. Like I'm not a princess, so something must be terribly wrong with who I am. And there's nobody to go to to tell the story. Um, sometimes that's the biggest hurt, and that's the biggest fear, and that's when everything kind of crystallizes and synchronizes and sets in like I'm alone. Um, but the key thing is to be present and to listen and to have Uh, Lots of questions, you know, and questions based on their story so that they can put it into words. That's probably a chunk of the healing. Um, Then there's other types of healing like um, having to deal with the emotions. So the kind of therapy that I work with is to help people have the emotions that they didn't have. So what they talk about is the pre-trauma, before the trauma, the trauma incident, and then the post-trauma. What happened is when people didn't have somebody to help them to get through it, they got stuck in the trauma and they stay there physiologically and emotionally for life. And so what you want to do, and then they reenact it, because then they're their worldview and their perception becomes where they're stuck in that trauma. So what you want to do is be present for them during that period so you can, they can have the emotions and they can have the relationship that they didn't have so that they can move past it and move through it. And I, one of the things that I think that you've been asking a lot is like, what does the therapist do with all these stories and these feelings? Um, you become really empowered to see people's resilience and to see people's strength. And you also become really empowered and enamored um, when you see people go through really painful things and come out on the other side. So in many ways, our clients and being present for them is a gift to us. Um, but there's also a real faith that if you do that process, you can move forward, and that, that's where some of the, um, the joy and the desire to work with that population is.
0: Well, resilience is in the title of your book, and it's a key word throughout mm-hmm. the whole book. And like in the case of this particularly horrible story, this Clara wanted to have her baby, her Lily, with her. She was put into the foster mm-hmm. system. And you did this whole work through with her so that because she was just angry. She was angry that she had been abused and social services hadn't helped her, and now they had taken her child who she had never hurt. But what do you do to help a mother become resilient, to help a mother so she doesn't repeat the same things that had happened to her beyond the working through of her own hurt? Because some of these mothers, as you describe them, seem to become really wonderful mothers.
1: Mm -hmm. Um. So the therapist and working through their own issues is important. So what um, they say is a, a mother's whose own cries haven't been heard is a mother that can't hear the cries of her own child. So, because, so if you're defended and you're shut down and that's how you survived, then you're going to be defended and shut down, and that's how you do life. Um, It's going to interfere with your relationships with primary people who should be supportive people. It's going to interfere with your mothering. It's going to interfere with your work relationships. So um, it's really important to help people use the resources they have, and one of those resources is other people in their lives. So as a child, A a resiliency or protective factor is having somebody that loved you. As an adult, it was having somebody in there with you helping you to mother your kids. So if we can foster those relationships, however, if you don't have really good communication skills, if you don't really have a model of a good relationship, um, it's going to be more difficult to do that. So part of it is training how to communicate effectively, how to get and manage conflict, how to deal with your emotional distresses, uh, how to work through conflict, how to build relationships in a more positive way. Um, A number of the mothers also said that not only did they want therapy for their own issues, but they wanted really concrete examples of how do I manage this mother-child situation or how do I manage that and what do I say? They really don't have the skills. They don't have a model. So having really concrete information on parenting and developmental expectations of your own children um, was really helpful to mothers. So having parenting groups... For mothers is really important because they want the concrete skills. Sometimes it takes many years to work on your own issues, and kids grow up fast. So you want to make sure that they have the skills necessary to maneuver day to day. So building relationships with core people, family members, and friends, um, taking parenting and education classes, having communication skills, um, the therapist helps to model that true in their interactions and how to get through problems and stuck places. So giving them those skills is really helpful. And again, these things that I'm saying don't come from me. They came from the mothers that I interviewed in terms of what helped you be resilient. And those are the things that they had said to me.
0: I'm just curious, and I judge from the dedication to your book, which is to your parents, that you had a very warm and loving family yourself growing up. I'm just curious how you came to this kind of work. What, what path did you take that led you, first of all, to psychology and then to this particular f- field or need? Um, well, Both my parents
1: were immigrants. My mother was from Ireland and my dad was from Venezuela. Uh, They had nine children. Um, They were kind of liberation theologists, so they identified with the poor and with those people who were underserved and underprivileged. My dad was a um, social worker in East Harlem with the Hispanic population and doing things like grassroots organizing and working with uh, community building and working with families in East Harlem. And... um, my mother was also part of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. So, um, and they also did a lot for the poor. Um, then later, my dad became a deacon and worked with the migrant workers. Um, I was named after Mother Teresa. She was a personal family friend, um, and so
0: there was really. W- Wait, we have to stop there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about Mother Teresa. I mean, how did she become a family friend? Well,
1: my aunt, Eileen Egan, um, worked for uh, Catholic Relief Services overseas internationally, and she met Mother Teresa in the 1950s and became her liaison for about 30 years. And my aunt introduced her to um, kind of to the world because she brought her to the different countries to set up um, the um, home for the dying in different countries, and to set up the Sisters of Charities in Mexico and other parts of europe um, she's written about three or four books about Mother Teresa and was her personal friend so in when I was born and i 'm not saying when <laughs> uh, <laughs> um I was named after her. So she had been a family friend and had come to visit us when we were in Woodside and in Flushing in New York. And um, I would visit her when she would come to um, the United States and stayed with my aunt in Manhattan. Um, But my aunt walked down with her to get the Nobel Peace Prize when she received that. Um, So that was a big model about how it's really important to deal with those who are underserved, those who are underprivileged, and to be able to have empathy and understanding compassion for those who do not have. Um, Also, the Catholic worker movement, my parents were very much involved with that, with Dorothy Day, Uh, again, working with the homeless and those that are underserved. In fact, We spent our summer vacations at Tivoli, New York, which is the Catholic Worker Farm. And um, my aunt was the uh, editor of the Catholic Worker magazine. So lots of messages, lots of models. My dad and mom and entire family was very involved. They were conscientious objectors. And my aunt wrote... um, she wrote for the United Nations the policy that they use now under conscientious objection. So from a very little girl, um, I learned that it was important to think about others. So um, I don't know if I had any choice, but I was becoming a social worker, whether I thought that was my own idea or not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, when I started my private practice, after um, the MSW program, um, women would come to me and I would ask them, you know, what brings you to therapy? And the mothers would say, I'm in therapy because I see that my childhood is interfering with my ability to mother my children and I want something better for them. Um, So when I asked, how is it interfering with your mothering? Um, One woman said... You know, my children, I have two girls. They want me to have a tea party with them. And they set up the table, and they get all dressed up, and we have the tea and the cookies. And I just sit there in that chair, numb and frozen. I don't know how to play. I don't know how to be spontaneous. And when I was younger, it was important to be invisible. And here, I need to be a good mother, and I need to be visible and spontaneous. Those are all signs of danger for me, because that's how I grew up. Don't be visible. Don't be spontaneous. It could put you at risk. I have to shift all that, and I want to do it because I want to be a better mom for my kids. Um, Another thing, um, another woman said that, She was willing to go back one more time. She had experienced the abuse, and she was willing to go back one more time to look at it because she wanted to come through it on the other side to be a better mother. And she was rageful that the perpetrator never had to deal with it once, but she had to go and deal with it twice. And I thought, that's pretty powerful stuff. It's not like I don't get chills when my clients talk to me. I get chills just
0: (laughs) listening. I
1: I still get chills. And I thought, that's really powerful, because if you read the literature, the literature says that women who have histories of abuse struggle with low self-esteem and shame and problems with intimacy and addictions and depression and anxiety and PTSD. And all of that is true. And they are still powerful women and there are seeds of resilience and a desire to be different, and that we have to harness the desire to be different, and we have to nourish those seeds that want to do something better and see something better for themselves and their children in the future. And as
0: you just described it in those examples, it's almost like the children gave them that chance for rebirth they gave birth to the children but then the children gave them the chance to you know reshape their lives it's a wonderful reframe if we can think of all our children that way yeah (laughs) then another thing I wanted to ask you about and we're rapidly running out of time is being a teacher again I went online and I usually read a lot of kind of snarky comments you know these little teacher review things every single one about you was stellar you're everybody's favorite teacher. 96% of the people would take any course you gave. What? Tell us about teaching. Why do you teach, and why are you so good at it? Um,
1: well, the only way you know you're good at something is somebody tells you. And my students do tell me that. I love my students, <laughs> and I, I don't put on airs with them. And I don't well, play. They say you're a
0: hard teacher. It's, it's not that you're an easy A. a. It's you no. Know, you require in-depth reading. you, you know, require class presence. So what, what is it you do? Well, there? I work to build resiliency. I know a
1: lot of my students are first generation college students, um, and that they need mentors and their puppies. They're only 18 or 19. They just graduated from high school. So I do a lot um, in the resiliency literature. Relationship is key. And in order to be successful in school, you need to be in relationship with other people. So I build relationship in the classroom, and re- and I a bridge to myself. I don't put myself in the role as teacher. Um, I have something to say, and um, they can take it, the information or not take the information. And um, the, what they say is that they feel that they can talk to me, that I'm approachable, that they can laugh with me, and that we can have these very fluid, spontaneous interchanges in class. Uh, Humor, I think, is really important. I try to bring this information into the classroom, like talking about ACEs. My students really appreciate that. I mean, it's one thing to talk about Freud's theory, but if they can't apply anything to their life, then it's kind of meaningless intellectual uh, information, that doesn't really help them to grow. So I try to bring a lot of stories into the classroom, and the stories, hopefully, are stories that they can relate to that um, can help them feel connected to the information. So that's primary way. But I do things like hold study groups. Um, they're more informal. We do note cards together. We talk about silly things like girlfriends and boyfriends and parents and... Um, other teachers and I bring cookies and we um, just have a model for studying and a model for studying in a group because learning is difficult so make it as pleasurable as you can Um, and doing that learning is I think is more pleasurable when you can do it within a group of other people Um, so I think that's one reason why um, they enjoy the class but I also really I do love them. I, I just see them as my puppies. I tell them my daughter left me and she's not coming back home. She, she, you know, she's living in Manhattan, and I keep trying to get her to be close to me. I said, "But so now you're all my children. How lucky you are!" Um, and I said, "That should scare you enough." But come to my office hours anyway.
0: <laughs> well, what I hear is a common theme. I'm trying to wrap this up. It's so hard. Is you're. Rock-bottom belief, whether it's in therapy, in the classroom, helping these women who have been abused, is relationships, not just with you, but in finding other people, study groups, support groups. And our society today, from my perspective, is just becoming so much more insular with people sitting in front of screens all day and, you know, communicating not not with someone directly. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts for us, but that was me trying to wrap up the last half an hour. I do Eric Erickson's stages of development,
1: social, emotional development from birth through old age. And what I say when we get to the old age part is another story. Uh, In fact, I say story time, put down your pens. Um, So the story that I give them about that is that... um, in old age, when people reflect on their lives, they don't say, oh, I wish I would have gotten that four-door Mercedes versus the two-door, or I wish I you know, could have made more money. What they say is, I wish I could have spent more time with the people that I loved. I wish I could have shared more experiences with the people that I loved. I wish I could have said that I loved them more and had more terms of endearment and positive interactions with the people around me, my family, my children, my friends. Um, So if we can use that as a lesson about how to live our lives, um, that would be a really important thing um, to learn. Because bottom line, our life is about the relationships that we have with other people. And the more that we can build community... Um, the happier we will all be, and um, the more pleasant the life experience would be. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Teresa Gill.